Welcome, everybody. We're talking to Alex Wyatt today, who's got paper of the month. Um, the title is Deep Whole Gene Genome CTDNA Chronology of Treatment-Resistant Prostate Cancer. And um, it's a CTDNA paper. It's published in Nature. Congratulations, Alex. Um, Alex, would you like to introduce yourself briefly and then just give a quick overview of the paper? And Brian and I have obviously got some questions. Hi, hi Tom. Hi Brian. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, I'm I'm Alex Wyatt. So I actually work in Vancouver, although I am uh, British originally. So Vancouver, you sound Canada. British. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's been ten years here, and I, I haven't lost it. Um, You're not missing much here at the moment, to be honest. <laughs> no. I won't tell anyone because no one else has spotted. But it's all going really wrong. Yeah, it's. <laughs> I'm quite happy to be in Canada these days. And, I'm and, happy uh, too. Um, I'm at the Vancouver Prostate Centre with a couple of colleagues that that you may know, um, in particular, Kim Chi, who's co-senior author on this paper. Obviously, Martin Green. Kim speaking to us anymore after the last podcast, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) So yes, we do know him, but he's not talking to us. (laughs) He's rather consumed with uh, with running BC Cancer, which is the the provincial uh, system that coordinates all cancer care in BC. Anyway, um, so so Vancouver Prostate Centre is also part of the University of British Columbia, which um, you know is is for our whole province. And you know, the, the, so there, are, I think as many are aware, we've worked on circulating tumor DNA for years in prostate and bladder cancer, actually, um, and we've tended to focus on characterization of ctdna um, in the later settings so not necessarily like sensitive detection of ctdna in adjuvant or mrd or so forth so like patients with overt metastases and and what this paper is is basically um really trying to get go back and answer some fundamental questions about where ctdna comes from what populations are contributing to it and I suppose a a much more comprehensive understanding of of what it's telling us about the cancer than we've had in the past from like targeted sequencing or low pass sequencing before. Let's start with that first question where does it come from and how do you measure it and just talk very briefly about the different methods one can use and the method you used. Yeah, absolutely. So I, you know, it's a, it's this almost like uh, uh, kind of backwards uh, notion: the idea that we study something that comes from dead cells and we say that it comes from proliferating cells somehow. But that actually seems to be the truth. And the best analogy is to think about um, maternal uh, uh, fetal cell-free DNA. So, so when you look in the in the blood of a woman who's pregnant. Um, by just 10 weeks, 12 weeks, a huge proportion of the cell-free DNA in that woman's blood is actually fetal or placental derived. And obviously that's a rapidly proliferating, invading entity. Um, and so the same is true in cancer. So, so we know that ctDNA is coming from perhaps a proliferating margin of cells. But what we've never really known before is, is, is it really coming from different metastases? Is it mostly coming from one region? Um, and so w- what we did is uh, actually perform deep whole genome sequencing, which is, um, you know, two things to point out. One, when you cover the whole genome, you're trying to get at every uh, piece of genetic information in the genome rather than just capturing, say, a narrow gene panel that pulls down a few genes of interest. So, so you're getting an enormous amount of breadth. But then if you actually want lots of resolution across that breadth, you also need the depth. So you need to look at those genomes. You need to look at hundreds of those genomes rather than just 
one. Um, and so in doing that, you start to get information about different cancer cells within the, within the person's body. Um, it is very expensive to do at the moment, which is probably why, you know, we or others haven't really attempted it in the past. So when um, it says depth a thousand times, it essentially means you're looking at it a thousand times. You need to look deep. Um, and, and that's a repest. That's, that's what the thousand means. Um, yeah. Just to just to explain a little bit because many people are aware of methods like gardent which is a panel-based approach and then of course there's natera there's the personalized based approaches do you just want to describe what you did and whether or not it's a panel-based or a personalized approach and why you chose the one you did so yeah so in the past we've used panel-based approaches kind of similar to to garden as you mentioned or foundation medicines liquid assay as well um where you know typically we'd profile a bunch of genes that we think are relevant for prostate cancer um and we'd sequence them very deeply um if you're uh, that's kind of what we call like a tumor agnostic type of approach because you don't know anything about the cancer when you're going in and you're trying to you're trying to say like okay we think there's ctdna here let's try to find an actionable alteration um, and then, as you mentioned, the, the Natera style approach is more about we want to know if there's ctDNA at all. Um, we want to know is there any evidence that this person's disease is still there, or have we actually already cured it? Um, and so that's where you actually already need a bit of information about that person's cancer. So that's, as you said, like a tumor informed approach. And that you know, you, so you need to ideally profile some tissue up front and build a personalized panel. Our paper, we did neither of those things. We actually said um, we're not going to we're not going to go in a priori with an idea of what pieces of the genome are relevant to capture. We're going to profile the whole genome in every patient and at high depth. And, and so, as that people can't do that, is because the process you take is extremely time-consuming, extremely currently extremely expensive. But in the end, this approach is probably the most comprehensive. Is that fair? Yeah, so it, it is the most comprehensive. The actual sequencing approach itself is no more time consuming than, say, targeted sequencing. But the, in the, it's much, much more expensive. And then the data analysis is yeah. considerably longer. Um, because actually for this paper... Um, you know, this had not been done before, so we had to write software in the first place. We had to design computer tools to actually be able to analyze the data because um, there's so many nuances to studying ctDNA that existing bioinformatics tools didn't really weren't as as appropriate as we'd like. So, suffice it to say, this is as advanced as it gets when it comes to depth of sequencing and informatics. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. And what, what's really cool is like just even since publishing a paper last week, we've been inundated with requests for the data set, which is publicly available. So we know that there's loads of other researchers out there that are you know, desperate to get their hands on this type of data set. I think, you know, obviously, as, as Tom mentioned, you know, we can't, we're not saying like, OK, every cancer patient now should be subjected to deep whole genome sequencing of their ctDNA because it, it, it is unfeasible for the way you mentioned. I mean, sequencing costs will go down, but I think probably more importantly, we can use these type of data sets to actually understand what should go into our targeted panels. Um, yeah. So we, you know, we can learn more about basic biology in these in this late setting and treatment resistance, and then improve our existing designs. So, Alex, describe what you did. You know, who are the patients? How many samples would you collect? And then we can start to talk about the major findings. 
Yeah, absolutely. So we, so we, um, it's actually not a huge number of patients. It's about forty patients, mostly with metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer, and all of these patients provided more than one sample. Um, so they all provided circulating tumor DNA. Um, some of them, many of them, provided multiple ctDNA samples across sequential clinical progressions. So you know, before and after. AR-targeted therapy, for example, and several of them provided uh, um, a synchronous metastatic tissue biopsy, and that came through a collaboration with Felix Fein and the uh, Stand Up to Cancer PCF Dream Team on the West Coast. Um, so, you know, in total, it's it's a group of patients where we have multiple samples, and that's really important because then you you can triangulate. Uh, results, right? You can look across time and across space within a patient and actually understand the different genetic profiles within those patients. So, go ahead. I'll I'll I can touch I'll on the key findings. I'll, I'll touch on the key findings briefly, if that. You far away with that. Yeah. So, so I think really three things stood out um, that I can highlight to the audience. The first is that ctDNA is more diverse than a single metastasis. That might sound kind of obvious, but actually nobody had proven that before. So what we mean is that when you look at a single met, you tend to just see one population of cancer cells. Um, not always true, of course, but as a general rule. When you look in the ctDNA, you can clearly see that there's all these different populations present, that each individual met only contributes, on average, a small proportion of the total ctDNA. So that was really uh, cool. Alex, we've had Samra on the call many times talking about um, driving mutations and tumor heterogeneity. Do you just want to describe, because I thought that what you did was very elegant in terms of your work with driving mutations and heterogeneities and those trees that appear in your... Uh, in your figures are super cool. Do you just want to explain a little bit about what you show with driving mutations? Yeah, so then when, well, when you have multiple populations present, you kind of want to know, well, how are they actually related? So you can, you can construct these family trees, these pedigrees um, of all these different cancer clones. And then you can say, well, uh, what driving mutations are present on which branches of the trees? And, um, you know, I think reassuringly, for the most part, the... Uh, you know, the early events are present in all the cancer clones within a patient, right? If you, if you get a BRCA2 defect early on, that's going to be present in all the descendants and all the different populations. But many of those resistance mechanisms are subclonal and they arrive on branches of, uh, of the family tree and they can actually change in prevalence over time. So that was a really cool thing is that we, we can see there's these multiple populations in the patient before treatment and then after treatment we look and the size of those populations has changed. Maybe one branch has swelled, swollen up. So Alex, one of the questions that I think the clinicians will be saying is what does that mean for things like DDR signatures for PARP inhibition and also you did some super cool work looking at the mechanisms of androgen resistance and you showed dynamic changes occurring. Could you explain those two issues for us? Yeah, so I think for, um, for HRR gene mutations, um, we and, and many others, I think, in the field have shown they generally arise really early in disease. So those they're kind of like fundamental drivers are still present later on. However, what we showed is that you can look in the subclones and see if the footprints of, if, if the signatures associated with those underlying mutations are still present. And so in the patients we had that had 
um, BRCA2 alterations or mismatch repair defects, we can see the same mutational signatures associated with those defects kind of continuing to accrue in the subclones. So those drivers are still active, even in this very late stage setting. So I think, you know, that that would tell us these patients would these these tumors would still be vulnerable to something that interferes or, or exploits defective DNA repair. So, so do you not, think do you think there'll come a day that we're doing serial ctDNA and making therapeutic decisions? Are are you ready to say that from the data? I mean, obviously, you didn't necessarily look at that in this data set, correct? You didn't look at you know AR alterations and then subsequent response to therapy, correct? Yeah, we didn't. We we tried to shy away from clinical outcomes analyses because it's quite a selected set of patients, right? We we specifically focus on patients that had lots of ctDNA. They tend to have poorer prognoses on average. It, it's certainly something we're looking at now because, as you mentioned, what we saw is that after AR targeted therapy, one of the key things that's selected out is new alterations in the androgen receptor, and so you know. If, if you had a patient that had clones that have uh, AR amplification prior to treatment, now we're seeing a higher level of AR amplification plus some genomic rearrangements that truncate the AR. So these kind of increasing aggressive AR alterations. So Alex, that's AR treatment being associated with dynamic aggressive changes to AR um, 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 DNA alterations. And, and you talk in your paper about some, a Darwinian effect there. Do you want to explain what you meant by that in the discussion? Yeah, absolutely. So, so we, we think that um, basically <clears throat> as, you imply, as you apply increasingly high selective pressures on these clones, you're, you're, you're raising like the fitness bar of where the androgen receptor needs to be. So if you're just treating with androgen deprivation therapy, you know, the fitness bar, the fitness threshold is not that high. And maybe, you you know, you only need an AR mutation uh, or a few extra copies of the androgen receptor to overcome that. But then we throw on top these potent AR inhibitors um, and sometimes multiple lines of them. And now you're really raising the bar for, for what that population needs to accrue in order to develop resistance. And so what we'll see is that, you know, prior to treatment, you may have this, this kind of aggregate of different cancer populations well, after you apply treatment one of those or maybe a couple of those will be really selected out and it tends to be those with lots of AR as we say augmentation um, so so these really aggressive AR alterations rather than that kind of um, maybe less aggressive subset. Would, would that maybe suggest that the more you treat with these potent AR inhibitors the more we need to treat with them, do you know what I mean? Or maybe develop new drugs against AR as opposed to our empiric clinical paradigm now, which is, well, we switched to chemo or now lutetium or this or that. We're kind of switching mechanisms, but are you saying like you're, you're causing survival of the fittest and we just need to develop new AR targeted drugs? Yeah, I, I think, you know, it, it does from a genomic perspective, and we can talk about the transcriptomic effects in a minute, but I think from a genomic perspective, it does suggest, hey, many of these cancer clones are still AR dependent, right? If you're seeing yeah. evidence of continued evolution of the AR gene, that would suggest that the AR signaling axis is still a relevant target. I think it becomes obviously increasingly difficult to target something when you've got 50 copies of it compared to when you have 10 copies of it. So... Um, you know, from us, from the strategy of targeting, 
perhaps that has to shift. But obviously, you know, we, things like lutetium, PSMA and other radionuclide treatments are still trying to exploit AR-driven disease, but in a slightly mm. different way. And that might be the way forward. Alex, you did quite a lot of work looking or comparing um, tissue and ctDNA at exactly the same time. What did you learn about the similarities and differences between the metastasis and the circulating DNA? So most of the time, um, you know, for, for most things that people care about, like those driver gene alterations you mentioned earlier, most of those tend to be quite similar between a single metastasis and total ctDNA. But uh, not everything. And there were some surprising differences um, you know, not just in the androgen receptor, but also in um, whole genome doubling status. So some people know this as tetraploidy or aneuploidy. We, we did see several examples where a single metastasis um, would have actually a different status for something like that than uh, probably the bulk of the disease in the patient's body. I, I think, you know, what the take-home message is that um, a single metastasis is, is normally quite representative of kind of key events in a patient. But if you're really trying to understand global biology um, and, and you know, what clones are present that might pop up and drive resistance, then it's not really giving you that information. So I think, you know, in, in the past, we've always considered tissue to be, you know, the gold standard if we want to do discovery research. And I think what this paper suggests is that we can now also add ctDNA to that, that it isn't just about finding a few key mutations in ctDNA. We can use this to just understand biology in, uh, in, within a patient. Alex, you talk quite a lot about whole genome duplication in your discussion and in the, and in, in the main bulk of the text. Do you just want to explain why you think that's so relevant uh, in your paper? Yeah, there's a few. I mean, there's a few reasons why it's important. Um, it's uh, you know from a fundamental cancer driver point of view, if you have extra copies of uh, you know all the genes in your genomes because because you've doubled the amount of DNA you have, um, that provides the cancer cell with redundancy. Um, so it can you know afford to mutate at a faster rate because it's not going to lose critical housekeeping genes, for example. So it you know whole genome doubling does give a selective advantage um, and it's been really poorly studied before we you know it, it's a difficult thing to study but it's a copy number change that is not the easiest thing um, to characterize we don't know its link with disease aggression in prostate cancer or bladder cancer or other urologic malignancies we don't know uh, the timing of when it arises we our data seems to suggest that it can arise late and even in these subclones so even in the clpc setting potentially still cancer cells acquiring a whole genome doubling event um you know we don't have anything immediately clinically relevant to target that but there are groups around the world that are trying to exploit aneuploidy hey Alex, this is this is really great work i have maybe what's a final question for me the last part of the paper talked about cell-free DNA fragmentation and nucleosomes, and I, I got lost. And I was hoping you could help me understand. What, what do you, I'm not sure I understand what you're measuring there and what the message is. Yeah, so this is obviously probably like the kicker of the paper. Um, so where we show that from DNA sequencing alone, you can actually understand aspects of the epigenome and the active transcriptional processes in the cells where ctDNA comes from. And 
the reason this works, so the, you know, the, the actual fundamental concept is definitely not our discovery. It, it was, you know, I think originally Jay Shinjure's group out of University of Washington a few years ago, um, not necessarily even in cancer, just noticed that cell-free DNA in the blood is biased by the nucleosome positions in the cells that it comes from. And so, you know, um, what that means is that, you know, in a, in a normal cell, your DNA is wrapped around these nucleosomes and that chromatin structure ends up kind of protecting the DNA. And a nucleosome unit is about, um, you know, let's say 150 base pairs, 160 base pairs, you see each nucleosome. Now, when apoptotic machinery comes along for a in a dead in a dying cell, it preferentially cuts DNA in between the nucleosomes. So, cell-free DNA is, is post-apoptotic. So, when you look at the fragment profiles of cell-free DNA from genome sequencing, you can infer where the apoptotic enzymes cut, and that then tells you where the nucleosomes were present in the original cells. Now, this may all sound like, well, why would you care? Uh, well, <laughs> the, the nucleosome position, the nucleosomes have to move to allow things to bind DNA. So every time a gene needs to be transcribed around the transcriptional start site, the nucleosomes have to move either side to allow that machinery to bind. So what it means is that you can use the fragment profile to understand where things were bound to DNA. And so we looked at the androgen receptor and we said, where, when, in which cases is the androgen receptor bound to DNA? And so that was really amazing. You can see, sorry, I'm monologuing here, so feel free to jump in. You can see the patients where there is really high evidence um, for androgen receptor binding to DNA, and then you can see patients where there's very low evidence. So, for example, individuals with neuroendocrine prostate cancer, small cell prostate cancer, bladder cancer, they have virtually no evidence that androgen receptor is engaging with DNA um, across all its binding sites. So that then gives us potentially a readout for saying, is AR activity high or low um, in live patients that are progressing on AR target therapies. Alex, I've got last two for me. There are some shortcomings of the work. That's terrific. But and you mentioned those. And then the last bit, of course, would be what, what next? So those are my last two questions. Then we can probably wrap it up. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we, we always try to be the, really honest about the limitations of ctDNA profiling in general. It's not applicable to every patient. There's often patients that have really low ctDNA and you just can't get resolution at. Um, the, the, in this study, we specifically focused on patients that we knew had high ctDNA. You don't want to be performing you know, thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars of deep whole genome sequencing and just profile leukocyte DNA. So we, we knew these patients had high ctDNA. So the cohort in some regards is biased towards patients with more aggressive disease. Of course, I would argue those are the ones we, we really need to study the most. So that's probably the, the, the you know, the most major limitation. And how did you address that false positivity rate, the hemopoiesis CT, um, ctDNA? How, how did you address that issue? Well, so we always profile the leukocyte DNA in parallel. So we always profile white blood cells, um, which you get in obviously every sample, that blood that you take. Um, and so I think it's something many research labs have done for years. For some reason, it's still not adopted by several commercial approaches. Um, but it's an easy way to exclude anything that's present in the hematopoietic lineage.
that's a big issue for some of the methods we're using at the moment. We're going to need to move on from there, I think. Um, and then, of course, the last bit is where do you want to go next? Yeah, so we, we obviously now we want to try to improve what we do with our targeted panels where we profile in patients in clinical trials and say, well, can we look, can we kind of expand the genomic, but also now some of this epigenomic nucleosome fragments stuff uh, from targeted sequencing. So that's kind of our next step is applying the fragmentomic analysis to thousands of patients that we've accrued samples from in the context of trials and, and detailed outcomes. Um, the other thing is that our code for this paper, our methods are all open source, the data is public. Um, and so I really hope that we can enable this type of work to be done on other cancer types because um, obviously we, you know we'd be useless trying to study uh, lung cancer or something else like that but others will can hopefully pick this up and run with it. I think that sounds fantastic. Brian anything from you? No just congrats again on the paper and on the work sounds like a, a huge effort and, and really sort of you know, groundbreaking. Really yeah. work. Congratulations. Appreciate it. Awesome. Yeah I th thank you for having me here. Pleasure thank you. Right. See you soon. Okay, bye-bye.